Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now would you open in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 13. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how thankful I am for the work that you have been doing and are doing here in our midst, in our own lives, in our own community. Lord, meeting with these leaders from these countries, in some of their neighborhoods, they're so hostile toward them. We pray you'd strengthen them as they do your work. And I pray, you, Lord, you'd strengthen us that we individually and as a church body would, as we just sang, be pleasing unto you by the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody sent this to me and I got a kick out of it. I just wanted to share a certain portion of it with you. It says, you know your church is a redneck church if... You know your church is a redneck church if people ask when they learn that Jesus fed the 5,000 whether the two fish were bass or catfish and what bait was used to catch them. You know your church is a redneck church when the pastor says, I'd like to ask Bubba to help take up the offering and five guys and two women stand up. I have to gather my thoughts after that one. (laughs) You know your church is a redneck church if opening day of deer season is recognized as an official church holiday. (laughs) You know your church is a redneck church if a member of the church requests to be buried in his four-wheel drive truck because it ain't never been in a hole it couldn't get out of. You know your church is a redneck church if in a congregation of 500 members there are only seven last names in the church directory. (laughs) You know your church is a redneck church if the baptismal font is a number two galvanized wash tub. You know your church is a redneck church if the choir robes were donated by and embroidered with the logo from Billy Bob's Barbecue. And finally, you know your church is a redneck church if the collection plates are really hubcaps from a 55 Chevy. But how do you know if your church is a healthy church, if it's what Jesus intended? Remember, he said, upon this rock, I will build my Church. What did he have in mind as to the kind of church he wanted to be building? Well, the short answer, and then we'll exegete it in our text, the short answer is this. When the church is growing, growing, and gone. That is, when saved people become serving people, and the serving people become sensitive people, and the sensitive people become sent people. That's the short answer. Now let's read our text together in Acts chapter 13, the first four verses. Now the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, 
and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I have just been on a very exciting adventure, as I mentioned. First of all, traveling to the Middle East in and of itself is very exciting. You never know what you're up against. I have to travel to the Middle East if I'm doing Israel and another country, an Arab-speaking country, typically with two different passports given me by the State Department. One passport is for Israel and nations sympathetic with Israel. The other passport is for all the other nations that are not sympathetic with Israel. Now, the day before I was going to go, I got deathly ill. I didn't think I was going to make it. In fact, I was sure that I would call call to cancel. I'd call the night before and I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. Call Sammy and tell him I won't be coming. I've never been this sick. I woke up the next day and I felt pretty good. So I said to my wife, I said, you know, I'm I'm feeling okay. And she goes, you're not thinking of going, are you? I said, I'm going. You know, I was just laying in bed and I started thinking, because so many problems had happened up to this trip, The devil certainly would not want any group of Arab pastors in that part of the world with Islam all around them to become encouraged and strengthened. He would do everything he could to stop that kind of an event. So I said, I'm going. Well, we went, and it was so encouraging, and we went to Lebanon first, which was not far from Antioch in Syria, which we're reading about just a few miles away. And then to Jerusalem, where the church originally started. And the first most obvious thing that struck me is, Boy, this thing called the church has really grown. I mean, it started in that part of the world. And Jesus said, take it through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And the United States is about as uttermost as it gets in terms of Jerusalem as the beginning point. So here I am coming from the uttermost parts of the earth, going back toward Antioch and Jerusalem where it all started. And I was thinking about the kind of growth the church has experienced over 2,000 years. And my mind, of course, goes to Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul the Apostle, who became one of the great evangelists. But here's one of the reasons why. Because there was a growing, mature group of believers in Antioch who sent him on his first missionary journey. Most commentators call Acts chapter 13 through the end of the book the Acts of Paul the Apostle because he's the dominant figure. And he becomes the dominant figure largely because of this healthy church that's at Antioch. Now this morning I want to draw your attention in the verses that we cover to four spiritual conditions that marked the church at Antioch. Let's call them benchmarks of growth. Four spiritual conditions. And we're going to begin with the most basic and move to the advanced. The first condition is the most fundamental description of a Christian. Saved. These people were saved people. But they became involved with one another. And the second condition is they were serving each other. As they grew in their relationship to the Lord, they became sensitive people, sensitized to what 
the Holy Spirit was saying to them and through them. Fourth and finally, they became sent people. Or you might say senders. They sent out, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul. Now folks, this is a natural progression for supernatural life. It's a natural progression of supernatural life. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will bring forth much fruit. And we'll see it here with this church at Antioch. So the first benchmark, the first mark of spiritual growth is the most obvious. They were saved. Now look at verse 1. It says, now in the church that was at Antioch. Stop right there. That term church, though we have our own baggage and our own definition of what that means, if you take it all the way back to the biblical context, this is what it means. A church, according to the New Testament, is a group of saved people. Saved people who gather together. In the Bible, church never refers to a building. Never refers to an institution. Never refers to an organization. Always refers to a group of people. The term church is found 118 times in the New Testament. It's a term, some of you even know the Greek term, ekklesia. comes from two words, ek and kaleo, which means ek, out from, kaleo, to call, to call out from. So, It originally means, and by the way, it first was a secular, not a spiritual term. It it referred to a group of people called out of their homes to meet in a public place. A legal assembly, you might say. It was people who were members of a a free city-state called polis in Greek. They would gather together and they would discuss some business. That's why you find the same term, church, ecclesia, in Acts 19, referring to a pagan assembly, not a spiritual church. But all the people in Ephesus in Acts 19, as they gathered together against Paul, and they cried out for two hours in that amphitheater in Ephesus, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It says the whole assembly, ecclesia, church, gathered. That was a pagan assembly. However, as time moved on, the term ecclesia, church, became a word exclusively for a spiritual community and referred exclusively to not just a group of people, but a saved group of people. That is why one of the synonyms in the New Testament for a church is they were believers or those who believed. For instance, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Acts chapter 4, 32 says, The church was the multitude of those who believed. And Acts chapter 5, verse 14. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, why am I making such an emphatic distinction here? Because I believe from time to time, we need to be reminded of who we are. We need to be reminded biblically what a church really is. That a church always refers to people, never a place. It's not where you go, it's those who go. Always refers to saved people. Now, I know we often misuse the term. We say, 
I'll meet you at the church. I'm going to church. Now, if you were in the New Testament, that really wouldn't make sense. To say, I'm going to church, is sort of like saying, I'm going to basketball players. That doesn't really make sense. If you were to say, I'm going to basketball players, we would know what you mean. You probably would mean, I'm going to an arena to watch basketball players. I'm going to the pit. Which would imply you're a fan. But not necessarily. You know, you you could be dragged to the pit. People could say, you got to go to a basketball. I don't, I'm not really into basketball. I'm not into organized sports. Well, we want you to come with us. Okay, I'll go. But you could be there, not because you're a fan, but you're there under duress. Well, it's the same way with church. You can go to a church building and not be part of God's church. In other words, you may not be a saved individual. So, in the New Testament, once again, a church is a group of believing, saved people called out to be together. The second reason that I'm emphasizing this is because saved people do gather together. And they do it frequently. Have you ever talked to people and their response when you bring up God, Jesus, religion, the church, they'll say something like this. Well, I'm not into organized religion. I'm a Christian. I love God. I follow Jesus. But I don't really need church because I'm not into organized religion. Can I just say that's a cop-out? And what that person is really saying is, I don't want to be accountable to anybody else. I want to do my own thing, and I don't want anybody questioning my own thing. That's all it means. Solomon said this in Proverbs 18, verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. See, the truth is, we all need to answer to someone else. And the only way to do that is to be together. And to be together frequently enough to make the accountability work. I discovered that one of the phrases that describes church life in the New Testament is this phrase, one another. It appears 70 times in the New Testament. Love one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Well, you can't do those 70 one another's unless you're with one another. You got to be together. You can't be isolated. You say, well, wait a minute. Can I be a Christian without joining a church? Well, I... I suppose technically you could, but that's sort of like being a soldier without having an army. It's like being a a sailor without being on a boat. It's like being a tuba player without an orchestra. Can you imagine that? What do you do? I play tuba. With whom? No one. Well, that's kind of boring. To make a tuba sound good, you need an orchestra. The truth is, you couldn't get some of us together unless we were saved. Am I right? You couldn't get us together unless we were saved, unless there was some common faith that drew us together. Because there's enough differences in culture and background, in baggage and custom that could drive us apart. But what brings us together, irregardless of that, is Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of it. As Moody Monthly put it, there's lots of different kinds of nuts in the Lord's fruitcake. (laughs) So here we are, God's fruitcake. 
saved nuts all together, called out together. That's the most basic description. The second benchmark is that they were serving. Notice in verse 1, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then five names are listed. So two spiritual gifts are mentioned, and five names are listed who fit those. Barnabas, we've met him. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And finally, Paul, or as he's called here, Saul. So this saved group of people together in the list are two spiritual gifts and five names. To me, that is noteworthy. Instead of mentioning one man designated as the minister or the senior pastor of Antioch, not mentioned at all. There are five different people. There's a plurality of leadership and giftedness working together here. It's beautiful to behold. Now, I suppose if this were Calvary Albuquerque, you wouldn't have five. You'd have hundreds of names on that list because of so many people that are sharing their gifts and ministering at different levels. There's a plurality. A couple names I want to draw your attention to. First, Simon, who is called Niger. Now, Niger means black. And the consensus of most scholars, commentators on the New Testament, is that Simeon was a black African. Now, you know why that's noteworthy? Is we're talking 2,000 years ago way before all the stuff that has happened with the Civil War in our own country. And 2,000 years ago, there was no discrimination over color, no discrimination over race. In fact, a black African was one of the leaders exercising a prominent spiritual gift at the church in Antioch. The second name, it mentions Manaean. Notice, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. The word been brought up with literally is he was the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. So think about this. Here's two guys, Herod and Menaean. They grew up in the same home. But as they grew up, they made two different choices. One became the Herod who was the leader of Galilee at the time of Jesus Christ. This is the Herod that killed John the Baptist. And Menaean, who's a leader in the church. Talk about a study in contrast. These two boys grew up and one killed the forerunner of Jesus Christ and the other became a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they both made different choices, that's why. Now I have heard that there is in the Midwest a courthouse situated on a hill and it's situated in such a way that when rain falls on the roof, depending on what side of the roof it goes on, goes in two different destinations. If rain falls on one side of the courthouse roof, it drains off into the Great Lakes and ends up in the Atlantic Ocean. Rain falling on the other side of the courthouse roof drains out into the Ohio River, the Mississippi River, and the Gulf of Mexico, way far apart. Just a breath of wind makes all the difference in the destiny of that water. Well, so it is with the choices that people make. Depending on what choice we make concerning Jesus Christ, we end up in two different places, two different destinations, two different styles of life. Here's two brothers 
who made two choices, a study in contrast. So what we know so far about this church is they were saved people called out to be together. And while they were together, they were serving one another with their spiritual gifts, which is a natural part of the supernatural life that is within us. This is what ought to happen whenever saved people gather together for any length of time. After a while, they want to get involved with each other. They want to utilize their own spiritual capabilities to train up and raise up people around them in the church. They they don't want to be spectators anymore. They want to be participants. They don't want to be just watchers anymore. They want to be workers. They're not content with being, well, let's call them pupitators. They want to be servants. They want to add to the life of somebody else. This isn't a Steinway piano, but it's a good one. But I visited a Steinway uh, outlet one time that was attached to a factory. I discovered that a Steinway piano, one of the most beautiful instruments ever, The reason it's so beautiful and so harmonious is because of the work on the inside. 12,000 parts put together by 200 craftsmen over a several-month period of time. But 200 guys and gals and 12,000 parts later and several months of building and polishing makes an instrument that a great piano player can beautify a room or an occasion with. I see a church like that. We have thousands of different parts. We have hundreds of different leaders. And when they all come together and the work on the inside is everybody using their own part to glorify the Lord, it becomes like an instrument through which Jesus can play his music in a community, in a state, in a city. Now, the New Testament doesn't use the analogy of a piano, it typically uses the analogy of a human body. This is what Paul said, Ephesians 4, verse 16. Under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Here's the question. What special part is your part. How are you helping other people grow? And please don't say, well, I'm not gifted, because you are. If you're saved, you're gifted. If you're saved, you're qualified and equipped to serve. Charles Spurgeon said, there's not a spider hanging on the king's wall, but it has its errand. There's not a nettle that grows in the corner of the churchyard, but it has its purpose. And I will never have it that God created any Christian to be a blank, to be a nothing. He made you for an end. Find out what that end is. Find out what your niche is and fill it. And here's the first step if you don't know what to do. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Roughly translated, you say, God, here I am. Here's my body, my hands, my eyes, my feet. I'm yours. I want to be your instrument. Show me how I can plug in and make a difference in somebody else's life. That's where you go from saved to serving. That's the second benchmark. There's a third. 
It's when the saved who are serving become sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They grow in their relationship with Him. Look at verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, presumably through one of these prophets, or maybe all of them together, He said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Does verse 2 strike you as a bit different in terms of wording? Notice what it says, as they ministered to the Lord. It does not say as they ministered for the Lord. It does not say as they were ministers of the Lord. No, they ministered to the Lord. Well, what does that mean? How do you minister to the Lord? The term ministered is a Greek word, leturgeo. We get the term liturgy from it, an order of service. Many churches are big on liturgy and a very structured order. The word comes from this word ministered, leturgeo. In the Old Testament, it referred to, if you were reading the Septuagint, it would use that term, it referred to priests in the tabernacle who were performing works of service for the tabernacle, like praise, like a burning of incense, like prayer. In other words, they were performing works related to worship. Here in the New Testament, the word refers to prayer, adoration, um, worship. In fact, if you have a New International Version, I'm reading New King James, if you have an NIV or a New Living Translation, it says, now as they worshipped, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. Have you ever heard this phrase? Have you ever heard a Christian say something like this? Boy, that ministered to me today, what Fernando played. Or boy, I was blessed by that. We've heard that, right? You've said that from time to time. Now, can you imagine God saying that? That's what this means. Can you imagine God, when we gather together, beholding our worship for God in heaven to go, boy, was I blessed by that. I was ministered to by that. So often in the Psalms, bless the Lord at all times. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, listen to this verse. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, to bless his name to this day. See, when, when people gather to minister to the Lord, there's no agenda. It's all about him. It's all for him. I find there are a great number of people that want to minister for the Lord. But there are few people who are willing to minister to the Lord. And more and more, God's dealing with me on this. Telling me that the most important thing I do is not my preaching, teaching, exhorting, preparing, organizing. It's worshiping. It's ministering to the Lord. Remember Martha who served and Mary who sat. You know the story. And there was Martha. She was ministering for the Lord, working hard, and her sister was sitting around listening to Jesus. And Martha complained, tell my sister to get up and help me. Remember what Jesus said? Mary's chosen the good part. It's not going to be taken from her. One thing is needed, and she got it. 
I think we could use a bit more of that, don't you? A bit more waiting and worshiping before working. A bit more listening before laboring or lobbying. More Mary before Martha. That's the idea of ministering to the Lord. Now, typically in, um, in a church setting, um, people come up with an idea. Maybe a staff member comes up with an idea. We sit down, we formulate a plan, have a staff meeting, and implement it. Whatever happened to just ministering to the Lord, waiting on the Lord, is this what you want? Is this your plan? A.W. Tozer once said, Worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. And he said, God wants worshipers before he wants workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. You know, there was a church that Jesus wrote a little postcard to. They were busy, they were active, they were involved. They were serving. And he commended them for it. But then he said to the church of Ephesus, there's just one thing I have against you. You've left your first love. Can you imagine getting to a point where you're so busy about the king's business that you actually forget the king himself? That was the church at Ephesus. So they were saved in Antioch. They were serving in Antioch, but they knew how to balance out the sensitivity here to the Holy Spirit. And while they were waiting, as they were ministering to the Lord in that setting, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, Now I've got a plan. It involves Saul and Barnabas. And when I read that, this awakens a desire within me. If that's what it takes for God to speak while we'll wait on Him and minister to Him, We want more of that. I read about a church in England, in Fairford, England. They have actually a monument to a cat in their courtyard. They say this monument is because a cat used to come into their worship services frequently. During church, he would come in and hang out. And they had to admit that the cat was in more of the worship services than the people of the community. So they built a statue commemorating the worshiping cat. Hey, I'm not going to be outdone by any cat. If there's going to be worshipers, it ought to be us. Where we're working, certainly, but waiting, absolutely. Fourth and finally, the last benchmark is sending. Verse 3, And having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, that is Saul and Barnabas, and sent them away. So... Now get this, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's say, so which is it? Did the church send them? It says they did. Or did the Holy Spirit send them? It says he did. Answer, both. Here's a church mature enough, sensitive enough to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and agree, we better export what we have in terms of the gospel. And send people out. And let me just say that every church and every mission organization better make sure that when they send people out, that it's the Holy Spirit that's really sending them out. The Holy Spirit sent them on the way. 
So Paul leaves Antioch, goes on his first missionary journey, covers Galatia, covers Asia Minor, and then he'll come back. And the mark of a healthy group of Christians is when the saved become the sent. And if they're not the ones sent, they're involved in sending others who are sent. That's healthy. Converts become disciples. Disciples become apostles, which means sent out ones. Robert Speer wrote a manual called the Student Volunteer Movement Manual about missions. This is what he said at the introductory remarks. If you want to follow Jesus, you must follow him to the ends of the earth, for that is where he is going. We cannot think of God without thinking of him as a missionary God. It's been well said before that Jesus called us to be fishers of men, but too much of our activity is being keepers of the aquarium. Well, which is it? Fishers of men or keepers of the aquarium? Well, we got this aquarium. We better make sure that all the fish are... That's great. And we ought to do that. Certainly, we ought never to neglect the church life within the aquarium. But there's so many outside the aquarium that the people inside the aquarium need to be concerned about what's going on outside. And if you think about it, throughout the Bible, as I read it, God is very mission-minded. He's a missionary God. He tells people to go other places, like Abraham. As soon as he calls Abraham, the first thing he says is, leave, Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees. Get out from your family. Get out from your environment. Leave your home and go to the place that I will show you. You know why? God said that in you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. God wants to bless other people, other nations. So he sends people to go out. And then, if you think about it further, Jesus Christ himself was a missionary, sent from heaven to the earth on a mission from his Father. He said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. David Livingston was the great physician who went as a missionary to Africa from Scotland. And he used to always remark on this. He would often say, God had but one son, and he was a missionary and a doctor. He was sent out. Finally, the Holy Spirit is mission-minded. The whole book of Acts, every chapter of it, we see the Holy Spirit arranging church life so that it goes from Jerusalem, the gospel, to Judea, through Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of of the earth. The question I leave with us today is what about you? There's something I want you to toss around in your mind during this week. It's something Jesus said to his disciples. He said, as my father has sent me, so I send you. As my father has sent me, Jesus So I, Jesus, send you, those who believe in me. So the question I want you to wrestle with this week is, where am I sent? And the answer might be right where I'm at. It might be right in my neighborhood, right in my school, right with my family, in my job. But it might be elsewhere. But all of us are to be involved in that enterprise. You'll notice it in our bulletin every week. The vision statement of the church is printed in there. Upreach, inreach, and outreach. 
just like Antioch. Once they were saved, they were involved in upreach. They ministered to the Lord. Once they were saved, they were involved in inreach. They were serving one another. Once they were saved, they were involved in outreach. They sent out Barnabas and Saul. All of those together. So, you can tell a redneck church if they use 55 Chevy hubcaps when they take up the offering. But you can tell a healthy church when they get serious enough to be growing and growing from saved to serving to sensitive to gone being sent. And maybe, just maybe, out of this service this morning, somebody will be prompted to be sent. And you're struggling with that. A career maybe, a decision. Can I just say what somebody once said very appropriately? If God called you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. That's the highest calling. If God has put that on your life. Whatever God has placed on your life is the highest calling for you. Did you know that 97% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola? I read that, I thought, that's staggering. Coke's only been around 100 years, and 97% of all the people who live on the earth have heard of Coca-Cola. You know that Jesus has been around for 2,000 years, and there's a lot of people that have not heard of him. So, we the saved who serve one another ought to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and in that he might be saying, go. Just maybe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your people, and we say right here, right now, use us, take us, our bodies as living sacrifices, that we would live a life of sacrifice. We would live to please you, live to minister to others, live to tell others about you. Just as the Holy Spirit sent others I pray you'd send us to whatever capacity in whatever region you've called us. And it might be right here. But we are yours, and we're on a mission from God. Reveal to us more and more as we're more open to you what that is. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for our friend Fernando who has led us in this glorious time of worship, inspiring songs that move the heart and prompt a response. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.